right. Well, it's good to see you here again this morning. Uh, that we're able to gather together is a blessing from God. Uh, but before we begin this study or continue the study this morning, let us uh, open with a few words of prayer. Father, we are indeed truly blessed to gather together because of Jesus Christ. It's through His salvation that we are united together as one body, and it's as the church that we come together to consider what Your Word has to say about justice in this world, and what Your Word has to say about race and racism, and what it means for us today. And so we pray that you will be with us, Lord, that you will help us to understand these truths, to uh, grow in not only our knowledge, but in how to rightly respond to the realities of the world in which we live, and that you will truly continue to empower us through your Spirit to carry out your will as long as you give us life in this world. And so we pray that you be with us and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when we met last time, I focused on what I called the three R's, corporate responsibility, repentance, and reparations. And by looking at what the Bible teaches about sin, we learned that God holds us guilty for our own sin, both sins of commission and sins of omission. We also saw that we are guilty for personal sin as well as corporate sin, whether we have sinned consciously or unconsciously. And so we're guilty of the sins which we have done ourselves and the sins in which we've participated with others. And so God holds us responsible for these sins. But we are not guilty of the sins of others simply because we're born into their family or because we belong to a society with them, and so we should not feel guilty over their sins or be held responsible for their sins. And after considering corporate responsibility, we shifted to repentance. And just as there is personal sin and corporate sin, so there is personal repentance and corporate repentance. If we have sinned as a group, then we can repent together as well. And while we must repent of the corporate sins, which we have been involved in, we cannot repent of the sins which we are not responsible for. But this doesn't mean there's nothing we can do when we hear of the tragedy of corporate sin. As Kevin DeYoung maintains, we can make an apology in different ways. So he speaks of recognition, where I acknowledge what happened and I see the negative effects of those sins of omission or commission. I can have remorse, where I feel terrible for what has happened. It can be renunciation where I reject what has taken place in the past and repudiate the beliefs, words, thoughts, or actions that have taken place. And of course, there is repentance where I have sinned against God and will turn away from this evil and strive after greater obedience to God's law in my life. But we ran out of time before I was able to address the third R, reparations. So let's begin this class by considering the subject, which has become quite controversial today. Now, what are reparations? Well, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, reparation is the making of amends for a wrong one has done by paying money to or otherwise helping those who have been wronged. You can see 
or hear a similar meaning in the word repair, right? Repair. And to repair something is to fix what is broken or isn't working properly. Now, in our biblical study of justice, we considered two aspects of justice according to God's law. You may remember there's a retributive justice and there's restorative justice. Retributive justice is carrying out appropriate proportional punishment against the guilty for violating God's law in order to uphold God's righteousness. And restorative justice is reversing the harm and loss of victims when they have been wronged by those violating God's law through injustice or oppression. So those guilty must make restitution for their sins by restoring what has been harmed or lost through their crime. So let me be clear, reparations are biblical. Reparations are biblical. They are the application of restorative justice to help restore what has been lost through injustice. Now, the most common example of reparations in Scripture is Zacchaeus, who we read about in Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. So let's turn together to this passage of Scripture. Uh, Zacchaeus, of course, was the chief tax collector in the city of Jericho who collected more money and taxes than the government asked for so that he could become rich. And thus he was breaking the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, right? Exodus 20:15. But what happens when Zacchaeus meets Zacchaeus meets Jesus? Let's read this these verses together. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down, and I received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I gave half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, here we find Zacchaeus willing to restore fourfold what he has wrongly taken. So he makes reparations for his injustice. But don't miss a central truth in biblical reparation or restitution that those who owe reparation are those who are responsible for the injustice. So we see Zacchaeus' repentance and faith through his payment of reparations. But beyond this, he also seeks to help the poor by giving over half his goods away. And this is the difference between justice and mercy. Justice is owed to fellow image bearers when we are unjust, while mercy is offered to others when they are in need. Now, both are required of God's people, as Micah 6, 8 commands, but they are not the same and must not be confused. So, what happens if reparations are not made before the offenders die? Well, this is truly a tragic injustice, 
But it is an injustice which can no longer be resolved until Christ returns and restores justice to this world. Now, does this mean that there is nothing we can do? Of course not. We can lament injustice. We can renounce sin. And we can extend mercy to help those in need. But this is the problem of discussions about reparations today. They assume a moral responsibility which is no longer true of everyone in our society. Now, I'm not denying the reality of racism today, nor the injustices which remain among persons of color. And whenever possible, restitution should be made. But rather than requiring reparations, Christians should be generous in mercy towards the poor and oppressed, including financial help as needed. So instead of looking to politics or public policy to help, the church should be those who are eager and equipped to be engaged in mercy ministry. So that's really, uh, I hope, a, a helpful step forward for us as we consider this whole question of reparations. But now we come to the time when we will think about race and racism. It's been the the idea behind our study, right? The the Bible, racism, and social justice. But you may be surprised to learn that I have intentionally avoided using these words throughout the previous six sessions. Why is this? Because race is an unbiblical concept that has no place in God's Word. The idea of race was developed to justify the practice of slavery in the Middle Ages. And as we have seen, according to Scripture, all of mankind is created in the image of God, but we are divided into different ethnic groups. These ethnic groups, then, are people who share ancestry, history, culture, and language. And in the Bible, different ethnic groups are usually referred to as nations. But this is not what races refer to. The word race began to be used to show the inferiority of one people from another. So the language of races separated humanity into superior and inferior groups, with inferior groups forced to serve superior groups. And in the Western world, black people came to be seen as primitive and feeble-minded. Skin color and biological commonalities came to be associated with a hierarchy from higher to lower levels of society. And most Christians came to adopt this understanding of mankind, as race-based slavery was normalized. Rather than critique the concept of race from God's Word, races were read into God's Word, and Scripture was twisted to support the inferiority of the black race and the practice of chattel slavery, which was actually forbidden as man-stealing in the Old Testament. But one of the most common ways that the black race was seen as inferior among Christians came from Genesis. So you have in Genesis 4 where Cain murders his brother Abel in a jealous rage. God then confronts Cain over his sin, and after God curses Cain in punishment for killing his brother, Cain replies that his punishment is greater than he can bear. And then in verse 15, this leads God to set a mark on Cain so that no one would kill him. But this mark on Cain came to be seen as the curse of black skin. And so the black race is the descendants of Cain, and they remain under the judgment of God. This sinful misinterpretation of Scripture was often combined with Genesis 9, where Noah becomes drunk after leaving the ark, and his son Ham disrespects his father by going into Noah's tent and seeing him naked. 
And once Noah awoke from his drunkenness, he curses Ham's son Canaan in verse 25. Now, assuming that Ham married a descendant of Cain, even though there's no biblical support for such a claim, God's curse against him is the continuance of black skin. Of course, none of this is taught by God's word. But it reminds us of how easily we can read our culture's beliefs and sinful preferences back into the pages of Scripture. Thus, Christ's church became an ally of black slavery throughout the Western world and here in America. Millions of Africans were forcefully shipped over here with hundreds of thousands of slaves in what became our own nation. And through the practice of slavery, racism became a normal feature of an American society. Now, what is racism? Racism is the sin of racial partiality, favoring one race over another race. See, racism is based on imposing the unbiblical concept of race on fellow human beings. So again, we are reminded of the sin of partiality in James 2, 1-4. So let's turn then to these verses. Since it's been several weeks, we've read this passage together. James here, of course, is writing this letter to Christians, and he warns them of this dangerous practice. So what does he say? Again, James 2, verses 1-4. to My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So in these verses, partiality is shown towards the rich over the poor, and they are not treated equally, but the rich are favored over the poor. You see, we commit the sin of partiality whenever we do not treat other image bearers equally, but judge them based on how much money they have, what their social standing is, or what ethnic group they belong to. And it's this sin of ethnic partiality that the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter over when he favored the Jews over the Gentiles in the church's fellowship meals, which we find in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 13. We see, with the development of the concept of races, we have the sin of racial partiality taking hold. And this racism was found in America as white people treated black people unfairly, especially as slavery was practiced in our country's history. Even as racism has lessened among us over the years, I think we all recognize it still continues today. And as Christians, we must oppose the sin of racism and defend the equality of all people who have been created in the image of God. Right. So that's a little bit for us to remember about racism. But now let's talk about this whole question of systemic racism. We need to consider the reality of systemic racism. Now, I know that simply using this phrase may make some of you nervous. Well, let's not forget what we have already learned from Scripture. As we learned previously, the sin of partiality can have social consequences. 
Those in positions of power within a society can produce policies which unfairly favor the treatment of some over others. So when you combine the sin of partiality with the abuse of power in society, this produces oppression. And in our biblical study, we have already recognized ethnic oppression as a specific kind of oppression by favoring one ethnic group over another in society through the abuse of power. With the growth of racism, this led to racial oppression. When one race is favored over another in society through the abuse of power. So this is how I understand systemic racism. Systemic racism equals racial oppression. Yes, we don't find the language of systemic racism in Scripture, but again, we do find the idea of oppression in Scripture. And so taken in this way, systemic racism is the application of a biblical category to our nation's racial practices and policies. And even if someone is not personally racist, he can participate in a system of racial oppression. Now, this should not be controversial. Who would doubt that prior to the Civil War, we had a system of racism in place in our society between white people and black people? Power was abused by favoring one ethnic group over another in our country. And we have to look no further than the U.S. Constitution, where we read of the Three-Fourths Compromise in Article 1, Section 2. Let's remind ourselves of these words. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their responsive or respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding the whole, to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. So built into our nation's constitution itself, a systemic racism. There was an oppression, oppressive system which treated unfairly the black slaves which lived in our land. And this legally continued until the Civil War ended and the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. While the Civil War formally ended slavery in the southern states and the 14th Amendment then gave back, uh, black men equal rights, we have to ask ourselves, was this the end of systemic racism and racial injustice in America? Of course, we all know that it wasn't. While freedom was granted to slaves, reparations were never made. Retributive justice was not upheld, and restorative justice was never pursued, which left deep inequality between white people and black people in our society. And then you have the passing of Jim Crow laws in the southern states that continued the practice of systemic racism. These local and state laws were passed to keep white and black people segregated. And so when these laws came before the Supreme Court in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, the justices held that these laws did not violate the 14th Commandment, or sorry, not the 14th Commandment, the 14th Amendment, but they allowed for the unjust but legal doctrine of separate but equal. And they continued until the Civil Rights Movement and the Supreme Court case of Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, where schools were finally integrated and segregation laws were struck down, allowing further 
for racial progress and equality to be upheld. But as Christians, this leaves us to ask, what about Christian churches? Well, systemic racism also took place through the abuse of power as black people were unfairly treated and not allowed into membership of white churches. Churches became political rallying places to maintain segregation and support the Ku Klux Klan. Mixed marriages between blacks and whites were prohibited. But unlike the 14th Amendment and Supreme Court decisions, these churches could continue racial practices and racist practices because of the First Amendment. And many of them did. All of this led to the formation then in our country of black churches, black denominations, and black seminaries, since they were not allowed in white churches or to be treated equally by Christians. So it's a little bit more about systemic racism. Still, a lot of time has passed, right? Much has improved. Racism is denounced in our society, and most Christians today recognize racism as a sin. We even had a black president who served two terms. Has systemic racism come to an end? Well, not if racial oppression continues. And this is the question that we're wrestling with and debating as a nation. But let me share two recent examples of systemic racism to show that this oppression and its effects continue to impact racial relations in our country. One example comes from the right side of the political aisle, while the other example comes from the left side of the political aisle. Let's begin with abortion. Abortion. I assume you know who founded Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in our nation. It's Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood in 1916 to provide birth control to women. Now, what is often not recognized is why she wanted to provide birth control to women. Sanger was a firm believer in eugenics, believing that humanity could be improved by breeding children with superior genetics and preventing the birth of children with inferior genetics. And so as she said, birth control is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit or preventing the birth of defectives or of those who will become defectives. So according to Sanger and the eugenicists of the day, science demonstrated that blacks were genetically inferior. And as a result, Planned Parenthood has murdered a disproportionate number of unborn black children through its history. This is well known, and it's admitted by the organization that she founded. See, Planned Parenthood has officially repudiated their founders' racist beliefs and removed Sanger's name from their Manhattan Health Center there in New York City. Listen to the words of their current chair of the board, Karen Seltzer. She says, The removal of Margaret Sanger's name from our building is both a necessary and overdue step to reckon with our legacy and acknowledge Planned Parenthood's contribution to historical reproductive harm within communities of color. She goes on to say, Margaret Sanger's concerns and advocacy for reproductive health have been clearly documented, but so too has her racist legacy. There's overwhelming evidence from Sanger's deep belief in eugenic ideology, which run completely counter to our values. Removing her name is an important step towards representing who we are as an organization and who we serve. Now, of course, 
my hope is that they go beyond recognizing Margaret Sanger's racist ideology to recognizing their 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 wickedness in killing and murdering unborn children. Yet we find Planned Parenthood today continuing to murder black children at a much higher rate than white children. Consider what the statistics reveal. According to Jason Riley in the Wall Street Journal, what's not in doubt is the outsized toll that abortion has taken on the black population post-Roe. In New York City, thousands more black babies are aborted than born alive each year. And the abortion rate among black mothers is more than three times higher than it is for white mothers. According to a city health department report released in May, between 2012 and 2016, black mothers terminated 136, 426 pregnancies and gave birth to 118,127 babies. By contrast, births far surpassed abortions among whites, Asians, and Hispanics. I just can't get past that number. And that's, of course, in one city. But Riley goes on to say, nationally, black women terminate pregnancies at far higher rates than other women as well. In 2014, 36% of all abortions were performed on black women who are just 13% of the female population. The little-discussed flip side of reproductive freedom is that abortion deaths far exceed those via cancer, violent crime, heart disease, AIDS, and accidents. Racism, poverty, and lack of access to health care are the typical explanations for these disparities, but black women have much higher abortion rates even after you control for income. Moreover, other low-income ethnic minorities who experience discrimination, such as Hispanics, abort at rates much closer to white women than black women. Do you see then how the, the, we, we, we even today wrestle with the tragic consequences of the policies that were developed through Planned Parenthood against black children and, and women through Planned Parenthood. So abortion, while not a popular subject among the left today, is truly an example that we can see of racial um, of systemic racism and racial injustice that has taken place even through the 20th century. But second, let's consider housing. Let's consider systemic racism in housing. In 1934, the Federal Housing Administration began the practice of redlining where they would mark off black neighborhoods on maps with red because they were seen as too risky to provide government-backed mortgages. This led black families then to be largely prevented from receiving home loans. Plus, as more houses were built in new neighborhoods, they had restrictive deeds and covenants which would only allow them to be sold to whites. This led to black families then not being able to move into these neighborhoods either. So blacks were prevented from living in white neighborhoods and they couldn't get loans to buy homes in black neighborhoods. And we see this systemic racism adopted in our nation's housing policy. 
Back in 1924, the National Association of Realtors produced the Realtor Code of Ethics. And in Article 34, we read this. A realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individuals whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in that neighborhood. And that policy continued until the Shelley versus Kramer Supreme Court decision in 1948, which ruled that racially-based restrictive covenants in homes violated the 14th Amendment. And so it was in response to this Supreme Court decision that the Realtor Code of Ethics was revised in 1950 when the language regarding race or nationality were removed. But think about this. This practice occurred in the lifetime of some of the members of our church. And its impact can still be seen today. While the average income of a black household is 60% of the average income of a white household, black household wealth is only one-tenth of white household wealth. Why is this? Well, since black families were prevented from home ownership and most wealth in America is gained through home ownership, there remains a large disparity between black households and white households today. Now, why do I raise these two examples? It's to show how systemic racism and its effects have continued in our society. And so we need to recognize this and learn about this. To be honest with you, I've learned far more about our nation's history as it relates to racial relations in the past year than I have in the rest of my entire life. Because we just don't cover these issues. They're not covered in schools. And while we've homeschooled our children, to be honest, they're not covered in homeschool curriculum either. So what we have is ignorance. And when our black brothers and sisters in Christ speak of systemic racism, we should listen. Now, as we will see next time, another worldview has taken hold in our society which finds oppression everywhere. So you'll often hear charges of systemic racism. And it's why claims of systemic racism must be supported by evidence. But this unbiblical worldview doesn't mean that we should deny all claims of systemic racism. And it's through recognizing systemic racism and the inequitable treatment of racial oppression that leads us to confront injustice and extend mercy to our fellow image bearers. And so it's as we remember these things and seek to work out these things that we can follow Christ and glorify God, who is a God of justice in our world. And so next week we're going to consider then the modern worldview, which is also seeking to address these questions and these concerns but leading many away from what the Bible has to say about the solution to these racial 
problems and these racial sins. And so we'll continue looking at those next time.